0: Good morning. It is good to be here. It's been a while since Judy and I visited with you. Uh, known Fourth Avenue for a long time. Most of your ministers have been friends of mine, although they might not claim it. Uh, Chris and I share background as both having been executive directors of Youth Encouragement Services and known Chris, been friends for a while. So it's good to be with you today. appreciate the invitation to come and share a little time with you. Uh, I want to talk this morning about passage in scripture that personally I consider one of the most important uh, in the New Testament because of what it says to us and about us and because of the moment in which Jesus uttered these words. Uh, This passage in John 17 is the last prayer that Jesus offers with his disciples before he goes to the garden and is arrested. So we think about this moment in his life Think about what he's about to face. The next day, he's going to go to the cross. This is his final time with his disciples. He spent the evening with them, talking with them about their mission, talking with them about the promise of the Holy Spirit, talking about the fact that he will be with them, what they're called to be and to do. And he ends that time with this prayer. And I've got to think that at this moment in his life and ministry, what he says must be of extreme importance and so I want us to consider today what he prays he opens the prayer with a brief prayer for himself father the time has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you he knows he's about to head to the cross and so he prays about that experience and in this prayer he mentions that he has given eternal life to those who believe in him has given eternal life. They have eternal life. He says eternal life is this, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Sometimes we think of eternal life as something that we long for, we'll get someday, it's gonna come at the end of time with pearly gates, but that's not the way Jesus thinks about eternal life. Eternal life is something we possess right now in a relationship with God and with Jesus. It is eternal life to know God and to know Jesus. Then he turns and prays for his followers that he has chosen, these twelve disciples who've been with him all through his ministry that he's commissioning to go out in the world and, and the larger center of the prayer is a prayer for them. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, these that he's chosen, that he's been with. I pray for them. Right now I'm not praying, he says, for the whole world. I'm praying for these you've given me. And here's his prayer for his followers. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. His prayer is that his disciples would be one as Jesus and the Father are one pretty high level of unity and he goes on to say my prayer is not that you'll take them out of the world but that you'll protect them from the evil one this is a critical point unity comes from god disunity comes from the devil disunity comes from the devil he wants God to protect them from Satan so that they can be one as Jesus and the father are one as we'll think about this morning Christians can come up with a lot of reasons for disunity but Jesus says the source of disunity is the evil one And then in a remarkable moment, Jesus turns and prays for all who will believe in Jesus through the message of these apostles. Think about that. All of those who will believe in him through their message. That is everyone who ever believed in Jesus. They either heard the apostles preach or they heard someone preach who heard the apostles preach or they heard someone tell the story of Jesus that's written in the books that the apostles wrote and the people who heard them wrote. There isn't any of us in this room who believe in Jesus, or anyone in any of the churches in this city, or anyone in any of the churches in the world who've ever believed in Jesus, who can't trace their faith to the message that the apostles preached. They're the ones who took the story of Jesus to the world. And all of us since then believe because we've either heard or read the message that they preached. That means in this moment, the night before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays for you and me. He prays for you and for me. You know, one of the struggles we sometimes have in reading our Bibles is we're reading documents that were written to people a long time ago and trying to figure out how to apply them to today. And every now and then we run into those really strange questions like what do we do with veil wearing, you know. And so we recognize sometimes, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes there are passages where Paul tells Timothy to bring him his coat. I don't know what to do with that. I can't bring Paul his coat. It's obviously written to somebody a long time ago. But we've learned that the message of Scripture, the real heart of it, applies across the centuries to believers everywhere. But it is a remarkable moment to find a passage of Scripture that actually says, this is for you, Fourth Avenue. This is for you Christians in Nashville. This is for you Christians in America, in Europe, in South America, in the Middle East, everywhere. This passage is directly spoken by Jesus for you. It's his prayer for you. I think we need to pay attention to this prayer. And here's Jesus' prayer for us, brothers and sisters. The prayer of Jesus for us today. I ask for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I, Jesus says, am in you, that they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's Jesus' prayer for all of us who are his followers. His final prayer for his followers is not for our success or our health or our safety or our happiness. His final prayer for us is for our unity. He prays that we would be one just as Jesus and the Father are one, that the love that God has for Jesus will be in us, and that Jesus will be in us. But I want you to look at a 10-mile stretch from downtown Nashville right down Franklin Road to the edge of Nashville and Brentwood. Judy and I live right about the start of this 10-mile stretch, and just a few blocks from our house is the Capitol Hill First Baptist Church, and then you pass Christ Church Episcopal and First Lutheran and African Methodist Episcopal Church, the Ethos Church, the Church at Avenue South, our church, the Woodmont Hills Church of Christ. Coffers Chapel, Free Will Baptist Church, Glen Levin Presbyterian, First Presbyterian, Judson Baptist, Holy Trinity Greek Orthodox Church, Our Savior Lutheran, Brentwood Hills Church of Christ, Oak Hill Assembly of God, Advent Episcopal, Korean Presbyterian. That's just one street in Nashville. You could do that all over the city. You could do it right here in downtown Franklin. You could stand on the front steps of this church and probably hit a half a dozen churches with a rock. This is a chart of the major divisions in church history. Starting with early Christianity and then the divisions between the various Catholic and Orthodox groups and then arise the various Protestant denominations and then the holiness movement and the Pentecostal movement and the Baptist movement. Down there in the middle at the bottom, disciples slash Christians, that's us. What we call the Restoration Movement. Those are just the major divisions. That doesn't count all the different kinds of Baptists free will Baptist, uh, primitive Baptist, Southern Baptist, American Baptist. Yeah. Doesn't count all the different kinds of Presbyterians and Reformed and Calvinist groups. They're just in one label there. That doesn't look like what Jesus prayed for, does it? I pray that they will all be one and that's what we did. Emo Phillips, the comedian, tells a story about walking along a bridge one day and seeing a guy about to jump. He says, stop, stop, don't do that. There's so much to live for. And the guy says, like what? And Emo stops and thinks for a minute He says, well, are you religious or an atheist? He said, I'm religious. Emo said, me too. He said, uh, are you uh, Christian or Buddhist? He said, I'm Christian. Emo said, me too. Emo said, uh, are, are you Episcopalian or Baptist? or what? He says, I'm Baptist. Emo says, me too. He says, are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? He said, I'm Baptist Church of God. Emo said, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or reformed Baptist Church of God? He says, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God. Emo says, me too. He says, are you reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1879 or reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915? He said, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915. And Emo said, die heretic scum. And I pushed him off. That'd be even funnier if it wasn't about true. I mentioned that we come out of that group called the Disciples or Christians, the Restoration Movement. One of the founders of this movement that produced us was a man named Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell was a preacher in Scotland and Ireland in uh, the Old Light, Anti Burger, Seceder, Presbyterian Church in Scotland. Yeah. Christians in Europe had divided between, you know, Protestants and Catholics, and the Protestants had divided, and the Presbyterian Church of Scotland came out of that, and then the Presbyterians there divided between the Seceders and the Non-Seceders, and between the Burgers and the anti and then between the Old Lights and the New Lights, and you know, trust me, you don't even want to know what all those things are about. And it just sickened Campbell. You know, this is not. This is not what Jesus taught us or prayed for us. It's not what the scriptures call us to. And so he wrote a document in 1809 called the Declaration and Address. It's considered one of the founding documents of of our religious heritage, those of us who come out of this background of churches of Christ and Christian churches and disciples of Christ. It was a passionate appeal for unity. And in this document, he wrote that the church of Christ upon earth, and he's not, he doesn't mean here like the church of Christ, our little section, you know, our, the, our denomination. He, he's using it in that broader sense of the, the Lord's church, the church that Christ created. He says, the church of Christ on earth is essentially one. It's intentionally one. It's constitutionally one. He's covering just about every way possible. In our essence, we're supposed to be one. It was his intent that we would be one. The scriptures serve almost like a constitutional document telling us we're one, and still we're not. He says the church consists of all of those in every place that profess their faith in Christ and their obedience to him. And then he went on to write. Because of this, Christians should consider each other as the precious saints of God. They should love each other as brethren, children of the same family and father, temples of the same spirit, members of the same body, subjects of the same grace, objects of the same divine love, bought with the same price, joined heirs of the same inheritance, whom God hath thus joined together, no man should put asunder. And then he wrote that division among Christians is a horrid evil, fraught with many evils. It is anti Christian, he says, because it destroys the visible unity of the body of Christ. So it's anti Christian. He says it's anti scriptural because it's a direct violation of his express commands in scripture. And he says it's anti-natural. It's anti-natural because because it excites Christians to condemn and hate and oppose one another who are bound by the highest obligations to love each other as brothers and sisters. So it's just not natural (laughs) to be divided. It's against our nature as followers of Jesus. And so... He, his son Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, other ministers at that time, began an effort, independently and then together, to try to get Christians to give up their divisions and to come together in simple unity. It was a noble dream. A noble dream. just didn't work. And this is a chart of what happened in their movement. The disciples divided between the disciples of Christ and the non-instrumental churches of Christ and the instrumental churches of Christ, sometimes called the Christian churches, and now churches like your church and my church at Woodmont, we've confused things so terribly now. Nobody knows which branch we belong in. And then our side in particular, the acapella side, just divided and divided and divided and divided again over all sorts of things. Whether the communion could be fermented or has to be unfermented, and who's going to break the bread in the ceremony, and it just went on and on and on. There are at least 25 different kinds of churches of Christ out of that branch of the movement. That's a unity movement. Seriously, that's a unity movement. I saw a cartoon one time, this cartoon is of a teacher in class talking about the history of Christian movements through history and any, you probably can't read that little print there, but it says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. <laughs> one of the students says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. <laughs> doesn't look like what Jesus prayed, does it? Jesus prayed that God will make us one, but but we've struggled with disunity. And unity, he says, comes from God, and disunity comes from the devil. And he prays that God would protect his followers from Satan so they can be one. You know, Jesus Jesus did not pray for us to have that many different kinds of churches. The Holy Spirit did not create that reality. Someone else did. Sunday morning in America is the most segregated hour of the week. Did you know that? The most segregated hour of the week is right now. Jesus didn't pray that we would have white churches and black churches and Hispanic churches, Korean churches. The Holy Spirit didn't create that reality. Somebody else did. Jesus did not pray for churches to divide over how we take communion or instrumental music or Sunday school classes or premillennialism or contemporary versus traditional music or Or on and on and on, the list goes. The Holy Spirit didn't create that reality. Somebody else did. Right now in America, you know, you've heard, that we're in one of the most divided periods as a country that we've been in in a long time, but that's also true in the church. Right now, in America, Republicans think Democrats can't be Christians, and Democrats think Republicans can't be Christians. And politics has created a war in church all across America. Ministers are being threatened, physically threatened. Elders are being openly insulted. In churches, I know one church where the elders got up to make an announcement on some subject. I don't know that it really matters. Probably public health related. And a man stood up in the church and angrily shouted, You're a coward, you're a coward, you're a coward, you're a coward, and you're a coward. That didn't come from the Holy Spirit. It came from someone else. And Christians may think that our fighting and dividing and and disunity comes from some noble motive. But Jesus says it comes from somewhere else. And no matter how hard Christians try to justify all of our divisions, division doesn't come from God. Disunity comes from what's worldly in us. It comes from self-centeredness or selfishness. It comes from anger or stubbornness or hostility or worldliness or the arrogance that I'm right and you're wrong. It comes from our lack of compassion for each other. And if God makes us one and we're not one, Maybe it's because we're working against God sometimes. You see, unity is not just a desirable option. It's not just a worthy cause we ought to take up sometimes. It's at the very essence of who we are as the people of God, in whom the Spirit of God dwells. People who follow Jesus, who prayed this prayer. It was Christ's final prayer for his disciples. It must be our prayer for each other and for all of those who follow him. And we must live in unity, he says, not because it feels good or blesses us, but so the world will know. Our unity has a purpose. It's part of the mission of God in this world. Our unity, our love for each other is a witness to the world of who Jesus is, of his love for them. We're called to be one for the sake of the world. And a major obstacle to faith for unbelievers is the fighting and dividing among Christians. You hear it again and again. Why would I want to be a part of that group? Why would I want to belong to that religion? Our angry, ugly Facebook posts are not drawing people to Jesus. Unity doesn't look like agreeing on everything, but it does look like loving each other despite our disagreements. And working together for the things God has called us to. Like helping people in need, sharing the love of God with the world. Good things. Things around which we could unite. For many centuries, Christians have... Uh, visited a church in Jerusalem as pilgrims some of you may have been there the uh, the west the Roman Catholics and Protestants have typically called it the church of the holy sepulchre the holy tomb I I like the name of that they call it in the eastern churches they call it the church of the resurrection it's an important thing it's not the tomb (laughs) it's what happened in the tomb and uh And for centuries, Christians have come to this place. It was first built by Queen Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine. It was later destroyed by earthquakes and fire. Most of what you see now is a reconstruction during the Crusader era, not nearly as beautiful as it used to be. Uh, And over time, uh, the church has been carved up in rivalries between various religious groups. Most of the church is controlled by the Greek Orthodox. There's a section of it that's controlled by the Roman Catholics over the place where they say Jesus was nailed to the cross. Another section the Armenians have where they say his garments were divided. Another section belongs to the Coptics from Egypt. Another section to the Syrian Orthodox Church. Do you even know there was a Syrian Christian church in Syria? one of the oldest in the world. And finally, there's a little place up on the roof that belongs to the Ethiopians. It's the only place the Ethiopian church could get. <laughs> Save a little chapel on the roof. And the story of this church is the story of endless, endless conflict and division, disfellowship, power struggles, fighting over whose calendar was going to be observed, who was going to get to control the church at holidays, whose liturgy would be followed. In 2002, there was actually a fist fight in the church between rival priests. And in 2008, it happened on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Christians in the church got into a physical fight with each other. They had to call in the Israeli police and they started hitting the police with their palm branches. You can't make this up. More than a century ago, they tried to find a solution to this and they reached an agreement that they called the status quo. Whatever part of the church you controlled at that moment, that was yours. <laughs> and they kind of declared a peace, a truce, and they took the keys to the church of the resurrection and gave it to a Muslim family in Jerusalem that was independent of all of these conflicts. And every day, this Muslim family faithfully comes and unlocks the door to the central place of pilgrimage in the Christian faith because Christians can't trust each other. And when they, when they froze everything in place, there was a little wooden ladder up above the door of the church. That ladder's been there for a hundred years. A constant, a constant memorial to divisions among Christians over the door of the central monument of the Christian faith, the empty tomb. And I wonder, I wonder if the story of that ladder doesn't have something to do with why so many people do not believe the story of the tomb. And brothers and sisters, there are way too many ladder stories all across the world. Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world would know his love. That's the call to us this morning, brothers and sisters, to be a people of unity, unity with each other in this room, unity with those followers of Jesus and the churches scattered all around us and all around the world. I have no illusions that it's easy. Trying to get Episcopalians and Pentecostals to worship together is not easy. But maybe it's not so much about the way we worship. Maybe it's more about how we love each other and join together to do things that God has called us to do and being patient with each other when we do things differently. We often complain that God hasn't answered some of our prayers. It seems to me that maybe in this case we haven't answered one of Jesus' prayers. And so I encourage us today to repent of anything that has caused disunity among us. For us to join together with followers of Jesus all over the world to say, God, Jesus, we're sorry we haven't been what you called us to be. And let's commit ourselves to be what he has called us to be. To be a people of love who share a message of love. So that all the world will know God's love. I'd like to close by praying over us this morning the prayer that Jesus prayed and then we'll sing a simple song that declares they'll know we are Christians by our love let's pray father we ask today that all who believe in Jesus may be one just as you father are in Jesus and Jesus is in you that we may all be in you so that the world may believe that you sent Jesus. We have received the glory that Jesus gave to his followers, that we may be one even as you and Jesus are one. Jesus in us, you in Jesus, that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent Jesus And have loved us even as you love Jesus. And the people say, Amen.